This is the Multiracial Identity Podcast. I'm Robert Cox. Welcome to episode three. Thanks for listening. So in the first episodes of the Multiracial Identity Podcast, I wanted to start things off by getting into some history what you could basically call multiracial history. When you think about what happens when you form our racial identities as people, and, and when, especially when we're young, and that's anybody, not just multiracial people, but anybody as we form our racial identities, knowing or at least being aware of some of the history behind that racial identity can go a long way to help a person integrate who and what they are whether it's monorace person or multiracial person. But for multiracial people, the interesting part can come when we're trying to integrate multiple racial heritages and those histories that come along with those racial heritages into one multiracial person who is ideally well-adjusted and happy and feeling it, feeling their multiracial identity. So in future episodes, I'm looking forward to talking with all kinds of people about how that happens and how that comes about, the challenges, the personal experiences, and all that as we explore what the multiracial identity means to us. But for episode three, I wanted to get into something. It's a topic that actually involves multiracial history and the fight to make multiracial with a capital M official. And as I said, that's a really big part of the podcast, and it's one of the reasons why it exists. And this topic also involves something that is part of the experience of millions of multiracial people, unfortunately. And that's the bigotry and even racism that comes from our own people, from people and groups of color from which we from which we come, our racial our multiracial heritages. In my case, it's the African American community. Because it turns out that this, and this really, really has made me so outraged, as you'll see in the interview, I do some ranting because of this. It's just, it's so infuriating and hurtful. And that is that it turns out that the Office of Management and Budget and all those bureaucracies in the government and all that stuff, that it, it stood in the way of the multiracial identity being added to the to the Directive 15 list. But... And basically being recognized by the rest of the country and, and everybody else, they're not the only thing standing in the way, it turns out. So while I've been wrapping up my talks with Susan Graham here in these first episodes, she's joined me early on here to lay down some of that important multiracial history so that we can go forward from there. And she's talked about her decades-long fight to make multiracial official. And I, I asked her, why is it why is the multiracial identity still erased effectively why besides the omb who has come out against this is it just the omb that stopped this obviously it has to be more and it turns out it is more and the answer was shocking to me as a part african-american person but it wasn't surprising considering my personal experience and what i've seen particularly lately from the african-american community in dealing with multiracial people particularly multiracial people who are part African-American and another race. So as you can tell, as I said from my ranting in this interview, I'm outraged by this issue. And it's an important issue that we need to directly address, as important as 
dealing with the racist white establishment that that all people of color deal with. So I've posted a link to the hearing that I talk about in 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 this interview, and it was a hearing leading up to the 2000 census. It was it was uh, broadcast on C-SPAN. Susan Grammer Project Race was present there. And it was really an important watershed event. And in the lead up to us getting the two racers or more, and what was on display there was really some, some rank racism and discrimination and bigotry by particularly groups that represent African-American people and by African-American politicians. It just, this issue just brought it out in them. And it, it was ugly, and after seeing it, I was pretty mad. And, and it just added to what I've always known and seen, and that is that multiracial people can be the victims of racism from groups of color. And that is absolutely unacceptable. So this is what Susan Graham said when I asked her, who, besides the OMB, who's come out against us being who we are, multiracial people? Who could possibly in the world be against this? And this is what she said. I think I first became aware that there'd be so much opposition um, when I, I was contacted by Chris Ash, who was a woman in Ohio who was working with the Speaker of the House to get a piece of legislation passed to put uh, multiracial on school forms and other forms. And uh, she told me that uh, although Mr. Mallory, uh, the speaker, was very much for what we were doing and had a grand multiracial grandchild, that uh, some others in the NAACP weren't as happy about it. Um, she did have a letter of support from Benjamin Hooks of the NAACP. That was back in the in the early 90s. And we did have that letter of support, which we thought would go a long way, but it, it didn't. Um, I became friends with Sandra McGarry, who was the Cobb County NAACP president. And she introduced me to Ben Chavez, who was completely disinterested. But it seemed like there was a lot of opposition. There were also, we were getting a lot of calls from people who had multiracial children and were in interracial families who had gone to, if something had happened to them, like cross burnings on their lawns of the interracial families and um, children being called things like mixed nuts at school and, and administrative school people, you know, not wanting to put multiracial on, they had gone to the ALCU, ACLU, I'm sorry, and the ATLU turned them down in every case. They took none of the interracial or multiracial cases. And we didn't know exactly why, um, but their administrator, uh, their head of the Washington office legislation was a woman named Laura Lee Murphy. And she was Irish and black. I met her, uh, with the, running interference from another ACLU attorney. And uh, Laura Murphy t said to me, do you really want the ACLU to help people who are actually black but call themselves mixed or multiracial? And I guess she didn't feel that way. So um, wow. that was that was a surprise. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> 
Yeah. That was kind of yeah. the first time. You, well, obviously, wasn't that you in a meeting that was arranged and then you kind of all got together and waited for this meeting and then she showed up and was rather rude and curt and and Very. and just exactly what you said right there. Very, Yeah. On the other hand, the uh, the attorney from the ACLU was very much for us and wanted to see it go through, but it, it didn't, and we just had to kind of, you know, lick our wounds and move on. Um, we also found out that the uh, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights was against us. I mean, come on. The U.S. Wow. Commission on Civil Rights was against us. Uh, Dr. Mary Frances Berry was chair of the U.S. Commission, and she didn't like what we were doing, and she made it very vocal and very uh, uh, out front that she was not for what we were doing. And it just annoys me to this day to feel that the Commission on Civil Rights was against the civil rights of our multiracial children. Uh, oh. It just wasn't right. It's it's just infuriating. You know, I guess what we'll point out at this point and what this is all about, and we're going to talk about a key hearing that went on in 1997 where a lot of politicians, a lot of black politicians or several, and different groups and, and different agencies got together to talk about whether or not to add multiracial with a capital M to the, uh, you know, to that list, the Directive 15, and also by extension, added to the, the upcoming 2000 census at the time. And it just, I guess what, what's, you know, we'll get, I guess we could just get into that hearing, I suppose. But um, I did want you to talk about some of the other people that you, you know, ran across that, that you know, well, gave you so much static between them and there. But, uh, well, actually, go ahead. So let's do that, and we'll get to the hearing. But um, so after that, and after you kind of dealt with the ACLU and boom, can you think of any, you know, what happened majorly with with a group like that, or uh, well, you know, a person me, of color? Let me point after that. Let me point one thing out, Robert. What is mm -hmm. the bottom line to me is that I don't understand, and didn't understand then, and haven't understood for thirty three years, why we need the blessings of other groups to claim our own identity. I mean, we, yes, we shouldn't have to go to the ACLU or the NAACP for them to give us our blessings. And it annoys me to this day that, that we do have to, but um, that's just well, kind of well, the way it is. Well, and I guess that's the thing that we'll point out now, and I've stated before and I'll continue to say it, because it's not something they didn't see that in the hearing. It wasn't recognized. It hasn't been recognized to this day, apparently, that every single one of the almost 34 million multiracial people in this country are people of color, every one of us. You know, in that NAACP, the people, the colored people, we're all people of color. So they have an absolute responsibility, if they claim to represent people of color, to represent us. And, to, and this right. distinction that, and I, we'll talk about it. There was a hearing. It was a congressional hearing held in 1997. You were present there were uh, representatives from agencies like the Census, the uh, Department of Justice, the Office of Management Budget, and it was all aired on C-SPAN. And it was very telling because there were several politicians, a couple of which, for example, Eleanor Holmes Norton of the District of D.C. and and others who I recognize and knew who just shockingly were against what you were trying to do and, and against the idea of the multiracial classification and almost against the two races or more option, which was supposedly a compromise. And so let's talk about that because it's just going, my head just wants to split. Every time they would say, 
well, this is going to detract from uh, people of color, especially African Americans, from getting representation and protection under the law. But you know what? I'm a mo- I'm a person of color too, and that just seemed to to go by and over everyone's head in that hearing and sitting there. I mean, you obviously saw that go on too. Your your statement was amazing. One thing, and what you laid out, and how, and what needs to happen, and and then just they just went on talking about how this would impact the African American community, and I was shocked and dismayed. And I mean, it was twenty something years ago, but you you have to still be doing a slow burn about that day and the attack that right. they took, because over and over again they insisted that somebody wasn't going to be somebody was going to be diminished if there was a multiracial attack. Uh, classification and that right there is racism at white people racist white people say that all the time their existence is diminished because an african-american person exists watching that i couldn't even think of the difference i can't see the difference let's go back to the hearings and what got us to the hearings um first of all organizations like the naacp and urban league we're worried that we would take away their numbers, which would take away their dollars. So it always, like in Washington, comes down to the dollars and who's going to benefit and who's not going to benefit. So mm-hmm. that's what the hearings were based on. We were invited to three different hearings. The first hearing, we took three states with us where we had passed legislation to put multiracial on forms. We took Ohio, Georgia, and Michigan. By the time the next uh, hearing rolled around where they wanted us to speak, we had seven states. We had Georgia, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Florida, North Carolina, and Michigan. So they they had to look at us and say, wow, these people are doing something. They're getting legislation passed in the states. Yeah, seven states as well. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So that's what we came to the hearings with. You know, they, they don't. You can't just walk into Washington and say, I want to say something. You have to be invited, and it has to be very formal and uh, so forth. And my son testified also at two hearings. And at one hearing, there was a, a representative named Danny Davis out of Illinois. And he was uh, his black representative, and he was vehemently against what we were doing, just outrageously against it. And he kind of tried to, you know, challenge me to say why we needed it and got a little feisty with me. But um, he got a, a real feisty with my 12-year-old son. And here's a kid who's invited to Washington by OMB and the legislature to testify. And he's being raked over the coals by Danny, Danny Davis. And Danny Davis, at the break, he came up to my son, and I, we were standing there, and, and he said, well, son, you know, uh, you got to understand that you're really black. And my son said, well, you have to understand that I'm really multiracial. And Danny Davis wow. said, yeah, well, one, one day maybe, maybe you'll be president, which is kind of a forecasting of Barack Obama, I guess. So, uh, I mean, the opposition was out in force. They had everyone who could possibly be opposed to us. Um, the Asian delegation, the uh, Maldath, the, the Mexican group, um, they had everyone who 
could possibly be against us there. And as a matter of fact, the NAACP had a man named Harold McDougall, who was uh, in charge of the Washington office, and his job was to get rid of us. We and did, that, and uh, how, did you, how did you come to, to realize that? I, I, I've been meaning to ask you how that realization came about, that, that his primary, just because he was always the one there confronting you, or? he Well, he was always in front of us, and uh, we were asked to come to Washington to give a speech on a panel that uh, C-SPAN was promoting. And Harold McDougall was on that panel with me and two other gentlemen who I don't even remember now. But um, it became very obvious from Harold's speech and my speech that we were so diametrically opposed to, you know, what each other wanted. Uh, and then I realized that uh, he was actually there to do away with us, to get rid of us. And there was a gentleman and and interrelate and exchange ideas and from a above board kind of situation. He didn't feel like he was really there in good faith, basically. No, no. There was also uh, a gentleman named Wade Henderson of the NAACP, and a lot of people would recognize his name. He was like the um, public relations spokesperson, and he talked against us constantly, and really deprived the multiracial population of its dignity. They tried to say that uh, we just, we're just we really black and just want to be known as something other than black, which would be multiracial. And it, that wasn't true. It, it's not true that um, we just wanted to be something other than, than black. But a lot of these people who were um, against what we were doing latched on to that. I also wanted to talk for a minute about the uh, academics that uh, hurt and, and helped us. Um, we had a woman named A.D. Powell, who uh, she runs the Facebook page against the one-drop rule, and she's done a lot of work and historically has done a lot of work on the history of, of race and what back when it was called mulatto in the census. Um, we had Dr. Myomi Zach, from NYU, Maria Root, uh, Reggie Daniel. We even had a person who I, I just adored uh, named F. James Davis, who wrote Who is Black? And it was, uh, it was really a best-selling book. But then along came a couple of academics who wanted to hurt what we were doing, uh, Rainier Spencer and John Michael Spencer, who wrote The New Colored People. And I think when you realize that the title of his book was The New Colored People. Uh, he had a beef with us. I was supposed to be yeah. racial people. And let's point out, when we're saying in this context and talking about these black groups, we're talking about multiracial people who are African-American and some other race, like me. Because that seemed, that's all they were obsessed with. And, it, and it's always, often, all... What obviously what, you know, African American people or, or groups or politicians have something to say on this. They, it's, it's with the general assumption that the only multiracial people out there are part black. And it's just so infuriating that they work off of that right. assumption. It's very racist for one thing and it's very self-serving for another. And it's just not true. You know, my wife is part Asian, Native American and Scottish Irish. There's no African-American in there, and she's still a multiracial person. Now, do they get to tell her what her identity is, too? Well, they'd like to. 
Yeah. Well, when you see the stuff from the 90s and you see that, how they, they've all operated, it's, it's an appropriation of this issue, appropriation of multiracial people, and the general assumption that all multiracial people are part black, but never the assumption that multiracial people are people of color. Never once. And any right. you know, just in that three-hour hearing that I watched, for example, because I'd never seen this on display until I watched that, and you've dealt with it so much. So it's right. just extraordinary that that they feel entitled. And one of the things in, in that hearing was was basically well, several of these the politicians, Maxine Waters, um, people from California, you know, from California, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Major Owens from New York, they. They all just uh, proceeded with the idea that the only multiracial people in existence were part black. And it, it's just right. a shocking. It's it's just racism. I just, oh, you're racist, you're racist. You know, I'm saying this to people of color. And for me, the only thing worse than racist white people are racist people of color. You know, where are we at then? Well, but the reason for that... The reason for that is that, um, you know, they invited other groups to come in, you know, like I said, the Asians, uh, Mexican-Americans. They uh, invited them to come in, and really the consensus was that their numbers wouldn't be disturbed. So that's why hmm. they focused on the black numbers. That's because funny the because... The other numbers weren't. Well, that, that, uh, I think her name was Mary Waters. She was the... Uh, uh, Department of Sociology from Harvard. From Harvard, yeah. She pointed out that they that actually, if there was going to be anybody impacted, and she didn't say that there would, it was going to be Native Americans, American Indians, as it's listed on the thing, and um, Asian population far more than right. the African American community. But that wouldn't have stopped Maxine Waters from showing up there, for example, or any right. of these other. African American politicians who felt entitled to come in and speak on this issue as if it's their own. And it's just shocking and infuriating. And every single time they never just say or realize that we are people of color as well. And well anyway, so and I, I, I have a feeling about that. Go ahead. Also what what um amazed me was that the NAACP, the black population has gone through many, many uh, changes in their wording. They went from Negro to colored to mulatto, black, and now African American. Negro was taken off of the U.S. census uh, during the last year. So, for a group who's gone just through <laughs> just recently, yeah. And um, so, for a group like that who has gone through name changes and you know things happening to their their groups should be able to understand why our terminology is so important to us. It's important to to have multiracial. Yeah, the uh, Census Bureau and OMB refer to us as MOOMS, which means stands for Mark One or More uh, Races or Check Two or More Races. And we're, we're more than just Check Two. We want the wording of multiracial. That's very important to us. And uh, they've called us worse names in the past, but uh, we'll, we'll settle for multiracial uh, because it's the correct terminology. It's dignified. It's uh, it's what Barack Obama, when he wasn't saying he was black, he was saying he was multiracial. So it's a respectable term. It's a respectable term that we want. 
But, when you, when uh, you were in that hearing, that's what you were pointing out. And, and actually, what you pointed out was really a good point, too. You know, recently, relatively recently, and they advocated for it, it went from uh, Alaskan Native, where it's in Native for, uh, or is it? Uh, uh, American Indian or Alaska Native, but it was Alaskan Native with an N, and they advocated right. and got it changed to Alaska, and it was very easily done, as you pointed That's out right. in that hearing. There, there was that that was a little. You pointed out two or three little tiny changes to existing categories that that was just simply no problem. But this is a problem. When you pointed that out, it was very glaring. You know, right. That was that right. strong and, and unnecessary. So, yeah, yeah. well, it smacks of the racism in, in a lot of ways from what I was seeing, because when you, you go through that display of, the, of all these agencies and people and groups and, and academics talking about this issue, there wasn't a good excuse not to do it. And that's all it was that's, presented. That's right. That and we, we got around the, the numbers issue because uh, we had passed legislation in different states that now, you know, a couple of years later, they were giving us data to show that, you know, not all these black people jumped into a multiracial category. The multiracial category grew, they grew, but it grew slightly. It was mostly people who used to check the box called other who went into the multiracial category. So we had the data to, to start, you know, making a difference and showing what would really happen and the 2000 census, you know, showed that there was a, a jump and then even further into the 2010 and 2020 census. So, um, you know, we're showing that, or the government is showing that it, we were right to, in, in the beginning to say that, um, you know, the numbers are not going to be out, completely out of whack. They're pretty much, you know, growing because the multiracial population is growing. But they're not jumping from one category to another. Well, and I found that just not a really great argument against my right to exist as a multiracial man. But maybe it does take from their numbers. So what? I'll, I'll just say it straight out. That one, that's not my problem. And two, that doesn't mean I don't have a right to exist. But for another that's point, right. it, 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 you heard a lot. Well, these numbers are used, especially from the African-American politicians and the people against this. Well, these numbers are used to protect people. These numbers are used to decide representation, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? We need the numbers to decide my representation because I'm a person of color as well. And then you, when you right at the end there, pointed out the story of the two multiracial kids who were discriminated against and, oh, well, your child and another child that weren't going to be, that were going to be held back in the school at the time. And That's and right. you went to school and went to the mat, and your son went forward, but the other child didn't. And they were both multiracial. They were not both black and white. But that comparison was a perfect example, too. But both of them were people of color who were discriminated against, period. If you want to go further right. than that as a group like ACLU or NAACP, you're being a hypocrite. I'm sorry, I'll stay it straight out. When, when this podcast airs, I'm going to put up the uh, hearing the final hearing that we were at um, that you've ta been talking about. We'll put yeah. it up on the Project Race uh, site and blog and Facebook page and social media. So if people yeah. want to go back and see what the hearing was like, they can. They'll be able to. Well, if, it's, you know, if there's a link for CNN as well, that just directly to it, I'll post it with the podcast as well as you know, for further information. Because That'd be great. 
it, it it's just an encapsulation to hear and it's, it was a lot of years ago and there and there was the hand largest victory of getting the two races or more but when you sat in and saw what happened in that that was an obvious you know that was we're going to pat them on the back for doing something that should have obviously happened and then the rest of the right. arguments that were read for, oh, we need a statistical bond, and they would get up there and, and McDougal, Harold McDougal from NAACP, went on there and ad nauseum about how these this data these data are are aggregated and used, and that's great and that's real important, but it's not used on us as multiracial people, huh? Because once again, the idea that we're people of color, right over everybody's head, and it's like, wow, right? Okay, well, you know what? I'll start by saying, one, I'm a person of color. Now I'll say I'm multiracial. Am I going to get some help now? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just the shocking yeah. self-interest of so many of uh, these groups. And, and if that's not, I'm not uh, naive. I mean, obviously, that's the way a lot of these groups operate. But when you say you're NAACP, you say you're ACLU, you're a hypocrite if you're not really representing all people of color. And they demonstrated over and over again that they either refuse to or will work against you if they don't like who you are or what you are. And that just, that shook me up to hearing your story and having you, yeah. how you dealt with that. That's just something. I mean, you interacted with time. Jesse Jackson in the, in the past where he was resistant it was and things just people that you've come across that people would recognize. Colin Powell came out making comment about one drop. I mean, there there's African American and even multiracial people that have really been extremely disappointing on this issue, if not directly racist. Just say, oh, you definitely, definitely. Yeah. There was such despicable behavior toward multiracial people. It was just amazing to me. And one thing that I learned in going through all this was if someone was vehemently against us, we didn't bother to stand and, and argue and shout and yell with them. We moved on. We left them behind and moved on to where we could get uh, people who were with us and not against us. And that's well, how we no have point, functioned. You're going to change their idea. I mean, <laughs> clearly you're. Well, a lot of it. What people don't realize too is that you know race affects so much. You can say that it doesn't, but it does. We proved that when we were talking about the medical issues. But even recently, uh, affirmative action was done away with. So, and uh, I've talked to a couple of uh, college admissions people. And I said, you know, are you still going to ask for race on admissions uh, applications? And they said, we don't know. The Department of Education is going to have to decide that if they want us to still collect data or not. And I talked to the Department of Education, and they said they had no idea what they were going to do. Wow. So you know, race, no race does affect us in, in areas that we don't even think about. I learned a lot about um, discrimination when uh, the NAACP has their uh, yearly annual banquet in Atlanta, and I was invited to sit at the president's table. Uh, Sandra McGarry of Cobb County invited my husband and I to come and sit at, at the president's table. And when we got there, I realized that I was only one of 
very, very, very few white people there. I think there were maybe three of us. And uh, we put our, uh, first of all, we were going into the main ballroom where they were having the dinner, and I was the only person going in who was asked for my tickets. Mm. Everyone else was black. They were not asked for their tickets. I was the white woman who was asked for a ticket. And I felt that discrimination. I, I felt how it must feel like to be in that kind of situation where black people feel discriminated against. And uh, and I felt discriminated against. But we put our, our things, my purse and my wrap, at uh, the president's table, and we went to see some other people and talk. And when we came back, there were two two women sitting in our seats. And I looked at them and said, uh, "Excuse me, these are these are our seats. This is our my my purse and my wrap." And they said, "Well, we're going to sit here." And I said, "Look, this is the president's table. We were invited to sit here. I'll make an issue of it if you want me to, but I suggest that you just go away quietly." And they got up and went away. But I shouldn't have had to defend myself and my you know the wishes of the president of the NAACP. I shouldn't have had to have done that. that anyway, that's I, that, I learned a lesson. That's the thing. You didn't deserve that. And no. and nobody deserves racism. And the general assumption, you know, and I'll say, and this is my term for it, the racist white establishment that all people of color deal with constantly. It's institutional. It's deep running. It's it's not just people. It's It's a whole big thing. But that doesn't. That then there's also this kind of racism from people of color, and whether it's directed towards white people, multiracial people, other black people, it doesn't matter. It's the thing that has stopped us from all getting together, and, and, right. and multiracial people get to see it the most. Whether you're not accepted in that Asian community, whether you're not accepted in the Latinx community, because you're not Asian enough, you're not Latinx, you're definitely not black enough. And that whole idea of blackness, and are you black enough, are you blacker, it's become a whole thing, particularly since Black Lives Matter. And we talked about this before. If I, as part African-American, who has roots, my great-grandmother came out of Maryland in 1881. She worked in the homes of of rich people her entire life until she died at 90. You're trying to tell me I don't have connection to that. I most certainly do. But, But beyond that... I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's almost like the, the, that that racism is trying to deprive us of that connection, and 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 say that I'm not black enough. But they say right. that to each other. The African American community goes back and forth. Black enough. That's called colorism. But when it's directed to a, a multiracial person who's part African American, it's racism. And and right. you know, particularly African American community, but all communities of color need to face up to their racism. And one place to start is how you deal with multiracial people. And then maybe we could deal with the racist white establishment all together, working together. But we're a a, a test case for for racism from people, communities of color. We we are a good example. And you talk to a multiracial person, chances are they've been discriminated against by their own people. And that's messed up. That's got stopped. You know, right. You chronicle the story of it all the way back thirty some odd years. I agree, and I'll I'll wrap up my kind of portion of this by going back to what I said in the beginning that um, 
we didn't we didn't need the bus don't need the blessings of other groups to claim our own identity or other people anyone multiracial people should be able to claim their own identity and have it reflected on forms in our country and newspaper articles and on television um, we're we are multiracial and that's how we want to be identified and we have that right well, any more than an African-American person needs to get validation for their existence from a white person of the white establishment. That's, right. what, that's the first thing I have to make. Who are you to define who and what I am? That's the first thing they would say. That's the first thing that any person of color would say. But we don't get that right? Yeah. No, we don't, actually. And, and in that hearing, they, it's, it was on display in the 90s that multiracial people right. are not entitled to protection, period. And they're not entitled right. to the same thing other other people of color are entitled to because apparently we're not people of color. It's shocking and infuriating yeah. and must change. So it, it has to change. I, I'm hoping that eventually it changes. I would really love to see it change to the 2030 census and have the OMB come out and use the term multiracial. I don't think it's going to happen, but it would be delightful if it if it would. Uh, we're taking steps to reach out to some other groups to try to you know bring this issue around again. And uh, because OMB is really not interested in talking to us anymore about it, they've kind of made so up their mind. So you're mind. saying the office and the management managed budget is, is 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 not engaging you this no. time around? Wow. No, they are not. How dare they? They are. They are pretty much refusing to uh, dialogue with us. So we're we're looking outward, and we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see by next summer. The um, there's a group called the NAC, stands for National Advisory Committee, and when the first hearings were held, they decided to have a, a meeting, and they decided to. Uh, put together this committee called National Advisory Committee. And the NAC was charged with finding out, you know, about race and ethnicity. And they make, they make their recommendations to the Census Bureau and OMB. So it's not, you know, it's the one person sitting in OMB making a decision. It's a big group of people, but they're mostly academics. And that's who the government likes to work with, is other government people and academics. They really don't like to work with advocates. So well, I know that. You didn't get a chance to talk a lot during the, the, the hearing, and we heard from a lot of other groups and, and less from you. Right. That was supposed to be okay somehow, but it was pretty glaring that right. you got so little time to address this. In the right. Yeah, well, we had three hearings, so if you put all the hearings together, you know, I think we made our point very well that, um, you know, Oh, you did your, your, your address. It encapsulated it beautifully 20-some-odd years ago, and we're still not there? It, it, still it's not there. <laughs> you know, you did it. it you, everything you said in that, that hearing in 1997, boom, encapsulated the entire issue. Nothing? Yeah. Crickets, really? Yeah. Still here, huh? Well, you know what? We've got a lot to talk about about how to go forward, and we're going to do that in, in, in following episodes. 
and and what you're working on and what Project Race is working on right now to get Directive 15 to add, you know, to change Directive 15 and get multiracial on that list or do whatever bureaucratic changes need to occur for our multiracial identity to be recognized. And so we've been talking about the history, and then we're going to be talking about right now and the future as well. So because things are popping off right now, and then, like you say, next summer of 2024, there's another decision coming from all these agencies, particularly the Office of Magic Budget, about if they're, about the census of 2030. And we do have time between now and then to maybe make a change and make, maybe effect if we come together as a community and do that and work for it. Well, and I you can get a lot of information for that at projectrace.com. If you're interested in wanting to advocate and get involved with this, you know, multiracial people, interracial couples, whatever, go to projectrace.com and follow up with everything that they have on there. Because this is all going on right now. Not just I think too that we have to point out that we we really are depending on the younger people to get active. They have to get involved, or this will never work. Well, I'm getting and for too example, old. the be the match, the, the be the match dot org. They don't accept donors under over forty. So the the, the future generations and and the young people right now need to get involved in this and recognize that you need to be a community and that for an important health aspect of that. Because I'm too old to, to I would, but you know, we're talking about people under forty or multiracial people to help other multiracial people be the match at be the match dot org. And that's one of the reasons why we need the younger people. Let's get together. Exactly. Absolutely. Well we're gonna be talking about all this more in the future, but this was really important and and after watching that information and, and reading your book, it was just so this is gonna be coming up as we go. We talk about the race why established, we talk about the government resisting this for whatever reason, racism, what bureaucracy, whatever. And then we gotta talk about the other things and resistance to this and what it means. And we started okay. very well. Yeah, with that. So well, fantastic. It was great to talk to you about this and even vent a little bit about my frustrations with the, with the uh, African American <laughs> community and particularly, but people of color and the communities of color that are, that are racist and, and discriminating against multiracial people. And that, this will be coming up again, obviously, but we want to get that out there. And your story was really important to tell in that right. regard. So, well. Thanks again, Susan Graham, and um, really appreciate you joining me for episode three of the Multiracial Identity Podcast. So, why talk about some congressional hearing that went on like 25 years ago on C-SPAN? Well, Susan Graham nailed it at the end there when she said, we shouldn't have to and we won't be looking to other racial groups to give us the okay to exist. Whether that's the racist white establishment or that's groups of color who are supposed to be protecting people of color, like the NAACP and the ACLU, or just people, just people from those monoraces from our multiracial heritage from which we come, we, we can't be and we don't need to be looking to them for okay and approval to be who we are. That has to stop. And as this shows, it's gone on for a long time. So also, this hearing and what went on there was a key event during the lead-up to 2000 Census. And Susan, in future episodes here, as we get back to this issue, I'm going to be talking about other things coming up. But as we come back to this issue in future episodes, we're going to, we're going to be discussing the deep impact on the multiracial community of both the lead-up to the 2000 Census and the Census itself. It was a turning point in multiracial history that can't be overstated. 
In fact, we wouldn't even have a way of telling that we are a community right now to this day without the 2000 census and even more importantly the 2020 census. So those population numbers I'm always spouting are from the 2020 census and as I've said in the introduction before those numbers speak for themselves. We are here big time and we are blowing up as a population. But as I've also I'm also always spouting 2000 was the beginning and not the end. What it was, and they said this in that hearing, that it was a compromise, but it was a compromise between the multiracial community and anybody else. It was a compromise amongst themselves. And as the hearing shows, monograce groups like the NAACP worked to rob us of the multiracial community at a key time before the 2000 census. And it was really for no other reason than bigotry because their stated excuses just don't fly. And they don't fly then and they don't fly now. Because lastly, it's important to add that the ACLU has been approached very recently, as in October of 2023, just a month before I taped this, this uh, particular episode, about working for the multiracial community and fighting for the multiracial identity. And, and a representative from that organization stated yet again that essentially this is not important to them. They don't see this as an issue. And the multiracial identity doesn't either matter or exist. I, I, didn't get, I wasn't privy to the conversation, but that was essentially what went on. They're not going to help us. So clearly we have got a lot of work to do. We have to educate many in the multiracial community about the importance of their identity and, and show them that they have a right to that identity, regardless of whatever anybody says, their own family, regardless. They have a right to be multiracial with a capital M, period. Full stop. And we have to educate the racist white establishment to affect this change and this advocacy that we need to be doing right now to be added to that Directive 15 list and to become a nationally recognized racial group, finally. And it turns out, unfortunately, apparently, we have to educate mono-race groups of color. As I said in the interview, we are a test case for racism in those communities, and they are failing miserably. And one of the results has been us being deprived of our identity. They're going to be working against it. Now, I, you know, we don't know exactly where the NAACP stands at right now, but I can, I can bet that they won't help us either, all things considered. So we've got a lot of work to do, needless to say, but that's fine. We've also 34 million people strong. We can do it. We just got to come together as a community. So thanks again for joining me for episode three of the Multiracial Identity Podcast. I'll be back with episode four very soon. <laughs>